it begins with a new decade. 2020, a pivotal year for the world, and maybe also for movies. This year, cinema turns 125 years old, and I am happy to tell you that reports of its death have been greatly exaggerated. In fact, if you ask me, movies are about to get fresher and more radical than they've been since half a century ago, when a generation of directors like Scorsese and Coppola and Altman looked at safe, dull, big studio films and decided, we can make something better. From Focus Features, welcome to the second season of Zoom, the podcast for curious people who want a closer look at the history behind today's movies. I'm film critic Amy Nicholson, and if you've come to hear about 19th century England, don't worry, we'll get to it in a minute. But first, I gotta tell you, the period of the late 60s and early 70s has been on my mind a lot lately. Because, well, it was a lot like today. The country was mired in a seemingly endless war. Eventually, the president got impeached, and America was starting to realize it had to build a better democracy, inclusive of all genders, races, and orientations. It was time for a revolution. And at first, just like today, the big Hollywood studios weren't talking about any of it. They were too busy competing with TV, so they focused on churning out spectacular G-rated period piece musicals. The Oscar for Best Picture of 1968? the same year the Viet Cong unleashed the Tet Offensive on American troops in Vietnam, went to the musical Oliver. These movies made money, but they were starting to feel out of touch and dated, like cultural empty calories. Maybe you're thinking about superhero movies right now. But then, just a year later in 1969, Best Picture went to Midnight Cowboy, a film that pushed so many boundaries it was rated X. Hey! And what's on my mind, what's got me excited, is that 2020 could be our 1969, the turning point for a cinema revolution. Hollywood has realized it's got to build a better, more diverse industry. And just like the 1960s and 70s, there's a rising generation of new directors making movies that challenge and feel vital the filmmakers who will define cinema's next 50 years. So, we're calling our new four-episode season Zoom 2020, a celebration of this pivotal moment as it happens. We're going to look at four directors and their new movies, which take classic stories and genres and give them a revolutionary twist. I mean, everything I do is like that. Starting with this filmmaker, Autumn DeWilde, and her debut feature, Emma, which is based on a novel by one of the most radical writers in the English language. I think she was an incredible satirist. I think she really got very core human struggles. You know, Jane Austen struggling against the class system and the politics that she was exposed to. Yes, Jane Austen. On this season premiere episode of Zoom, we're going to learn about the real Jane Austen, a rule pusher, rebel, and maybe even role model for the filmmakers of today. And we'll ask why a lot of people have spent the last two centuries getting her wrong. We're going to dig into Austen adaptations and talk to Elisa Donovan, star of the movie Clueless about the Emma of Beverly Hills, who goes by the name Cher Horowitz. And we're going to find out why Autumn DeWilde, a rock video director, 
decided to make her feature debut with an adaptation of a 205-year-old book, and why it still feels modern. So tidy your curls and have your servant call a carriage, because we're headed to Regency-era England. In the run-up to the invasion of Iraq, the then Secretary of Defence, Donald Rumsfeld, famously suggested that there were three classes of knowledge. That is Oxford professor Helena Kelly reading an excerpt from her book, Jane Austen, The Secret Radical. There were known knowns, things you know you know. There were known unknowns, things you know you don't know. And there were unknown unknowns, things you don't know you don't know. I would suggest that in dealing with someone like Jane Austen, we could add another, a more dangerous class of knowledge, what might be termed the unknown knowns, things we don't actually know, but think we do. Helena says we think we know a lot about Jane Austen, that she was a shy spinster, that she was obsessed with romance. I think it's one of the reasons that so many people think that they don't like Jane Austen. They kind of only see a very kind of, I suppose, like scrubbed, sort of sanitised, bleached version of what the novels are doing. They think of them as being kind of quite light and fluffy and not having anything difficult in them. But there is a lot of darkness in the novels. Which makes sense. Jane lived in dark times. For most of her life, her country was at war. In 1776, the year after she was born, England started fighting the American Revolution. After that came the French Revolution. And then came Napoleon, who tried to conquer everyone. The novels are almost all of them set during wartime. Basically, like, 25 years of Austen's life. Britain's at war with France. Um, You know, it's this sort of struggle to the death with a, a very powerful enemy who's rolling over the whole of Europe. War affected Jane personally. She had two brothers in the Navy. At one point, she lived near a port surrounded by soldiers. War, and the fact that as a woman she had no say in how or whether it was waged, seeped into her art. Some of her very first books were political, especially a satire called A History of England, written when she was just 15. The History of England is actually amazing. It's the most feminist retelling of history you'll ever find. So, for example, when she's talking about Henry VIII, she barely mentions him, and it's all about Anne Boleyn instead. This, Helena says, is who Jane Austen was, a teenage rebel. Even though she's really young when she's writing this, she wants you to think about women's lives and women's experience. And it's interesting that the character she really kind of heroises is um, is Mary, Queen of Scots, that even a queen can be crushed by the forces of a kind of patriarchal control and kind of social and cultural pressures. And I just think it's really interesting that even in her teens, like, that's what attracts her, that's what really interests her. How do women exert any power at all in the world they're living in at that point? Jane never published a history of England while she was alive, not even after her later books became hits. She couldn't have. Her country was still fighting wars all over the world, and the British government was intolerant of free speech. The British state was really paranoid. It locked people up for publishing what was called seditious libel, which is basically what the government wasn't enjoying reading about, didn't want to have promoted on the on the streets. And you had publishers being arrested for what was essentially treason, threatened with transportation to Australia, or kind of long periods in prison. It's a very restrictive regime. I mean, arguably, maybe more like communist Europe, uh, possibly even a bit like China. 
So Jane couldn't publicly write about politics. She couldn't even criticize British society. Unless she buried her serious ideas where no one was looking for them. In romance novels. So instead of, say, slamming the British government for slavery, which was still legal, she wrote characters like Mrs. Elton, an obnoxious rich woman who, here's the key, is from Bristol. Bristol was a major slaving port, but people at the time would would have known that without even thinking. So we know that she's from Bristol, we know that she's very defensive about the slave trade, which is a clear indication, in fact, that her money comes from slavery, as a lot of Bristol's money did. So one of Austen's least sympathetic characters makes her money from slaves. That is not a coincidence. That is Jane making a point about the kind of people who buy and sell humans. Again, she's hiding this in a romance novel. And frankly, even the romances themselves are pretty fraught. It's very easy, I think, for us to think of the romance as being fun and fluffy and rom-commy. But actually, like, this is potentially a matter of life and death for these characters and, and, and for the, the female readers at the time as well. Calling marriage a matter of life and death isn't an exaggeration. In Jane Austen's era, a woman's life literally depended on who she married. You're marrying a man who will then have total legal control over you, who can then have all your money, can take your children away from you, can do pretty much whatever he likes with you. You're really putting yourself in a vulnerable position if you marry a man who is not very nice. Perhaps unsurprisingly then, Jane didn't marry. Instead, she wrote Pride and Prejudice, Sense and Sensibility, Mansfield Park, and then Emma. Her fourth book, but the first one published under her real name. It was maybe her most revolutionary story of all. That's not how most modern audiences think of it. Back in the 90s, the version starring Gwyneth Paltrow kicked off a round of Austin movie mania by making it about a well-meaning matchmaker, Emma Woodhouse, and her own genteel flirtations with a series of dashing gents. Thank you so much, Mr. Oh, Churchill. Frank Churchill. A name I know as well as my own, so long I have heard it spoken. Your father's wife was my governess. Then you are Miss Woodhouse. How delightful. But while Autumn DeWilde's new version keeps the lavish costumes, the rom-com elements, and the dashing gents, it also tackles the darker themes of the original. To me, it was really interesting to try to make the satire that I think Jane Austen was writing with her words, you know, really wanted to physicalize and make fun of the sort of insanity of that class system and judging people by their inherited position in society. In other words, DeWild has made a radical film by getting across how radical the story of Emma has always been. If you don't know the story, let me give you the cliff notes. Emma is a 20-year-old girl who, as Austen writes in her opening sentence, is, quote, handsome, clever, and rich. She lives in a mansion called Hartfield, and she thinks she's perfect. So much so, she figures that she is the best and final arbiter of how and who every woman in her little town of Highbury ought to marry, especially when it comes to her middle-class pal Harriet. Of course, Emma is too handsome, clever, and rich to bother with a husband herself. I have none of the usual inducements of women to marry. Fortune I do not want. Employment I do not want. Consequence I do not want. I believe few married women are half as much mistress of the husband's house as I am of Hartfield. Emma is, in other words, not Gwyneth Paltrow's well-meaning matchmaker. She's actually kind of a snob. 
And a big part of the story is how she learns to stop being one, to realize that people beneath her station aren't just charity cases, whether they're middle class or impoverished. As Helena Kelly says, Emma is probably the novel that has, that takes the most interest in the rural poor. Which brings us to hedgerows. When you think of Jane Austen, you probably think of tea. Gowns. Hats with flowers and ribbons. Men with sideburns asking if they can have this dance. And most of all, green, green grass stretching over sun-dappled meadows lined with hedgerows. Picture those hedgerows in your mind. Now, imagine them sprouting protest signs. I wouldn't say you're necessarily alone in thinking of hedges as being a a kind of lovely, quaint marker of rural spaces. It's much more kind of political than it seems, those hedgerows. In Austen's childhood, the British countryside was full of open land, where anyone could hunt, fish, feed their livestock, or gather firewood. But by the time Austen wrote Emma, the rich had started to wall off the land for themselves by planting, yes, walls of hedgerows, called enclosures. For the rural poor, it was a really big problem. It basically means all of a sudden they've got to find money for firewood. Firewood's very expensive. It'll be like a fifth, a quarter of your income. Whereas previously, you could just go and get it off the the kind of open public space. At one point in the book and in DeWilde's movie, Harriet gets scared by poor beggar children and escapes by, quote, clearing that slight hedge. For Austen, that is a physical symbol of class inequality. It's incredibly clear, and would have been crystal clear um, to readers at the time, that the reason these people are so poor and the reason they have so little to eat is because Highbury has, within the last, say, five, seven years, been enclosed. And for DeWilde, the hedgerows do more than keep the poor out. They also keep women in. Because while the hedgerows supposedly kept a woman's shoes from getting dirty... She was kind of in a prison in her world. Walking was kind of the only exercise that was approved of. And uh, they were kind of prisoners in some ways. And so I think I think these mazes that were created to me is sort of like, you know, the little sort of mousetrap kind of thing. Also trapped together into Wilde's movie, The Rich and Their Servants, something that fascinated the director when she was a kid in Los Angeles. My dad was an artist and didn't have very much money, so... You know, I grew up in L.A., and the first time I went to visit someone's house in Beverly Hills, I was in shock that they just lived their lives with housekeepers and servants all around them and that they pretended they didn't exist. It was so strange to me, you know, that there was this whole class of people who are supposed to pretend they don't hear what you're saying. And it was really interesting to me to have these characters that were always observing and yet were supposed to be invisible. In the story, Emma's dad is a hypochondriac. As you can hear in this clip, he's terrified of catching cold. What you can't hear are the silent servants doing a comically elaborate dance as they try to position screens to help keep him warm. Do you feel a draft, Mr. Knightley? About the knees? The screen. Bartholomew, Charles, make haste. No, not that. This one. Other versions of Emma leave the servants out. In this one, they're everywhere, dressing the rich, grooming the rich, and rarely saying a word. DeWilde does everything she can to get across how ridiculously devalued they are as human beings, right down to the shape of their legs. I found out that male servants 
were how you displayed your wealth. So the female servants were not really valued. They were sort of tucked away and less needed, but male servants were chosen for their legs. Uh, they wanted them to have really nice legs when they were wearing their uniforms. <laughs> and and I thought that was hilarious. So wait, did you find servants with really nice legs? Yeah, <laughs> it was important to them. And so I also cast male servants with really nice legs. <laughs> <laughs> Angus Emery looks amazing in stockings. He plays Bartholomew. So watching DeWilde's Emma and thinking about the hundreds of years academics have spent analyzing Jane Austen's work, I had to wonder... How did we get from the social criticism she put in her books to the bucolic, everybody-just-loves-bonnets image we have of these stories today? How did those hedgerows go from political symbol to just plain pretty? I asked Devaney Lozer. She's a professor of English at Arizona State University. And in the roller derby world, I'm known as Stone Cold Jane Austen. Your roller derby name is Stone Cold Jane Austen? That's awesome. Stone Cold Jane Austen, report to the penalty box, right? In addition to teaching and bashing heads... Devaney wrote a book, The Making of Jane Austen, in which she points out people have been trying to use Jane's life and work for their own ends, almost since the day she died, age 41, right after Emma was published. Jane Austen died in July 1817, and she left two finished novels behind her that were published in December 1817, Northanger Abbey and Persuasion. And prefixed to those two novels was a biographical notice that was written by her brother, Henry, that introduced her to the world. And if you read it today, it can't possibly be true. I mean, for one of the things that it says is that she never uttered a mean or silly word. And, you know, we have her letters. We know she said mean things all the time. Wait, why would they want people to have that impression of her? I think family reputation probably had a lot to do with why they wanted people to understand her as an upright Christian moralist. But for a woman to have wit or uh, to have a kind of provocative approach to things, that was, a, that was a little bit beyond the pale. And I think she herself was experimenting with that in her fiction and with what happened to characters who said things that were beyond what was acceptable. But her family didn't want her reputation to be living on the edge. <laughs> well, yeah, and her brother even says that she had neither the hope of fame nor profit mixed with her motives. Yes, and that's that's obviously completely false. So she was very interested in making money. She wanted to make money off of her novels. And she was proud when people had kind things to say about them. She collected handwritten opinions on Emma after it was published because she wanted to record what friends, family, friends and friends said about her achievement in it. Even so, her brother's whitewashing worked. Jane got even more popular after her death with everyone, from liberal suffragettes to conservative men's clubs. As early as the 1870s, Austen was being invoked on both sides of women's issues, of women's rights. So she was first used by a conservative who was saying, there's this line in Emma that suggests to us that women should stay in the home and be happy there and not stick their necks out, in effect. But if Austen's family began muddying Jane's message, Hollywood finished the job. It took a while for Hollywood to get around to it. Jane's books were bestsellers way before Charlotte Bronte's or Mary Shelley's, but theirs were adapted for stage and screen long before Jane's. Austen was said not to be a good figure, a good option for dramatizing, I think because so many saw her novels as psychological. Emma being a perfect example. The stories got no creepy mores or Frankenstein's monster. 
Emma's self-involvement is the monster. It wasn't until 1940, after another historical romance called Gone with the Wind hit big, that Hollywood finally made its first Jane Austen movie. It was Pride and Prejudice, the saga of five broke sisters who need husbands. Look at them. Five of them. Without dowries. What's to become of them? Perhaps we should drown some of them at birth. <laughs> I'm glad you didn't drown me, Papa. Much too nice just being alive, even if I never had a husband. Although, in the first version of the script, the producers felt they had to macho up the romance for dudes. Imagine Austin meets The Hangover. That was a particularly unsuccessful version that had a kind of men's night on the town in London with Darcy and Bingley and cousin Fitzwilliam going off and being bros together. They went to a masquerade where there were women tempting them. They went to a dog monkey fight. It really was sort of crazy men's culture. And I suppose the idea was that they were trying to make the film appeal to male viewers. But fortunately, that was never made. Thankfully, that scene got cut after the studio hired a brilliant and unexpected rewriter. You know him better as the author of Brave New World. Yes, Aldous Huxley was brought in after a lot of screenwriters who clearly failed, <laughs> who were not able to come up with an appropriate adaptation. He was paid a lot of money, brought in to be a fixer. But despite the literary pedigree and despite decent reviews, Pride and Prejudice lost money. Austin adaptation spent the next 50 years on TV screens. Until 1995, when this happened. Don't scare her. Why, what's wrong? Cher is saving herself for Luke Perry. Cher, you're a virgin? You see how picky I am about my shoes, and they only go on my feet. Yes, one of the most famous Jane Austen adaptations, and also one of my personal favorites, Amy Heckerling's Clueless in which Emma was renamed Cher and relocated from the hedgerows of Highbury to a modern-day candy-colored Beverly Hills. Yes, well, it's the same hierarchical social system. Beverly Hills is like a small-town environment. You know that voice. It's Clueless's Elisa Donovan. She plays Amber, the insanely-dressed redhead famous for this gym class scene. Amber? Miss Stoger, my plastic surgeon doesn't want me doing any activity where balls fly at my nose. Well, there goes your social life. (laughs) Elisa might have been the only young actor on set who'd actually read Emma. Yes, I'm a huge Jane Austen fan. I was very much a book nerd in high school and in college, and in particular, 19th century English novels. (laughs) So, I mean, honestly, not to sound like a complete bore, but I was in my trailer reading, like, Dickens, David Copperfield or something. It was David Copperfield because I remember someone asking me... Didn't he just marry Claudia Schiffer when they saw the book? And I went, what universe am I living in right now? (laughs) I mean, I'm so curious, like, how you think Jane Austen fit into the zeitgeist of the 90s? Everything goes in these cycles, right? And perhaps we had reached this moment of grunge had reached its peak. And what's the opposite of that? Like, what's the opposite of a flannel around your waist and, you know, head banging? (laughs) It's being buttoned up with knee socks and short skirts and caring about your appearance. It's kind of the other side of the (laughs) spectrum, which maybe we were ready for at that time. 
Wait, that's true, because now when I think about it, there's so much in that film that's about making fun of grunge clothes. Right. So, okay, I don't want to be a traitor to my generation and all, but I don't get how guys dress today. I mean, come on, it looks like they just fell out of bed and put on some baggy pants and take their greasy hair, ooh, and cover it up with a backwards cap, and like, we're expected to swoon? I don't think so. So Clueless is rebelling against the rebels. And its weapon of choice is preppy, crazy designer clothing. And as much as I love it, I gotta say, the Jane Austen we've been talking about might not recognize herself in it. Or in that Emma with Gwyneth Paltrow, which came out one year later and triggered a flood of flowery Austen adaptations. But you can meet the real Jane Austen, because Jane basically wrote herself into Emma. She made herself a character. It's Miss Bates, the older spinster and daughter of a vicar who is dying to tell the world all of these stories about people, about their love lives, stories that, if you truly listen to them, reveal important secrets. But everyone misses the secrets. In the film, she's played by motormouth comedian Miranda Hart. Yes, at Weymouth with Colonel Campbell and his wife and Jane's dear friend, Miss Campbell, who is recently married. She is Mrs. Dixon now. And oh dear, Mr. Dixon, who is the most charming young man, rendered to Jane a great service in recent days. They were, oh, too pretty. As self-portraits go, to be honest, Miss Bates is as close to Austen as you get in the novels. She's it. She's right there. And people don't listen to her, even though if they did, they'd find the truth in what she says. And which character does director Autumn DeWilde identify with the most? The same one. Basically, like, I'm the American version of her. We have a common bond in being treated by the quote-unquote popular girl as someone who is in their way. Miranda Hart playing Miss Bates was really important to me because I'm six foot two and she's six foot two, maybe six foot one, I don't know. And um, there's a certain type of person that is really annoyed that you take up so much space. Taking up space. I love that because that is what Jane wanted to do 200 years ago. And that is what Autumn is doing today, along with a generation of new filmmakers who are telling Hollywood to make room. We are glad to do so, and we are going to keep doing it for the rest of Zoom 2020's four-episode spring season. Next up, in April, we will talk about femme fatales with this year's Sundance sensation, Emerald Fennel, and her star, Carrie Mulligan. Then, in May, we will talk about rockumentaries with last year's Sundance sensation, Misha Ganatra. And we are going to bite into political satires when The Daily Show's Jon Stewart unleashes the election comedy that only he could make. It is going to be a great season and a great year. So subscribe to Zoom on Apple Podcasts or wherever you are listening right now. As for this episode, it was written by me, Amy Nicholson. Our senior producer and senior editor is Rico Galliano. Stephen Colon engineered and did the sound design. Our ever-evolving Zoom theme music was composed by Martin Zaltzman. Graphic design by the fabulous Kim Troxell. And thanks, as always, to Angela Visagas and Joshua Kornblight at Focus Features. Till next time, stay curious. Hey, Zoom listeners. Love movies? Focus Features would like to invite you to join its loyalty program. Sign up today and access once-in-a-lifetime experiences, including film premieres, set visits, exclusive content, and so much more. 
Go to FocusInsider.com and join for free today.